I'm, I'm a big believer in running an adult business um, and employing adults and, you know, letting them, you know, deliver for you as opposed to a command and control uh, kind of environment. And that, I think that openness and transparency got us through that first quarter. All right, everybody, welcome back. Today I'm speaking with Gareth Jones, the CEO of Head Start, headstart.io. How are you doing today, Gareth? I'm doing great, thanks. It's eight o'clock in the evening here and it's it's lovely sunny day, the end of a lovely sunny day, so all good. Beautiful. We've got the nice beginning of a sunny day here in, uh, in the big island of Hawaii. Oh, nice. <laughs> I think I'd rather be in Hawaii, even so. Yeah, me too. I'm glad I'm here. <laughs> so tell me about Head Start. What are you guys doing over there? Yeah, so um, I guess Head Start, we're a, I guess we would call it a new breed of um, candidate or applicant management and uh, matching software. So we sit very firmly in the HR and recruitment technology space and we manage, uh, I guess, uh, job applications for early talent. So new entrants into into business for large enterprise organizations. So graduates, apprenticeships, and sort of uh, entry-level roles. And we mm. combine, I guess, data science-based matching uh, and screening with uh, sort of a, a, an applicant candidate management uh, tool. And I suppose our, our key area is around fairness. That's a, We have a very strong intent on um, leveling the playing field for applicants and giving people who perhaps wouldn't have an opportunity normally for an interview for a role or to get a job to have that. So we have a very strong play on diversity and in particular mm. social mobility. So again, surfacing, I suppose, individuals to recruiters who they probably wouldn't normally look at, who maybe have outperformed their social group or have grown up in challenging cir- circumstances, perhaps not gone to the the best university because they, you know, they had, uh, they had difficult personal circumstances and therefore surfacing opportunities to those people they wouldn't normally get. So yeah, that's what, that's, that's kind of the stuff that, that we get into. Interesting. What are, what are some of the axes across which, uh, that you guys correct for this and, and how, how can you tell if somebody is, uh, if somebody didn't go to say like the right school, but they are still on par with somebody who did. Hmm. Uh, how how does your system match them in that way? So we we kind of pull together a whole bunch of data, really. So we we get that from three broadly three sources. So we'll look at the organisation and try and understand if there's any you know success factors behind uh, people who are successful, uh, new entrants and graduates who are successful in the organisation, and we'll look at you know. We'll look at um, education history. We'll look at any any work experience they've got, and we'll look at other attributes, and we'll pull that data into the system. Um, we also then look at external data that's publicly available. So we will be to you know to feed our data engine, if you like. We're looking at you know job descriptions globally, scraping job descriptions, job adverts, scraping CVs to try and normalize job titles and understand the difference between different roles. So if somebody's had a, you know, some experience in certain, certain activities or skills, we 
try and understand how different or how separate that is from from other things. So we can kind of get a sense of how close somebody could be to a job, even if they don't appear to be that strong a contender for it. And then the third area Hmm. we, uh, and also in that external data, we pull in um, probably the most important stuff is the the publicly available data around um, around social deprivation. So um, it's things like school reports and school rankings, um, postcode data, understanding um, socially deprived areas, um, understanding where free school meals are given out, for example. So we pull all of that data in too. And then the third piece of data we get is from the candidate themselves. So when they're doing the application, as well as the normal things that we would ask them, uh, you know, what education uh, do they have, um, any skills or learnings or any work experience that they may have done before, we also ask them a bunch of voluntary questions, which are around their, you know, around diversity questions, uh, biodata, but things like, are you know, are they the first person to go to their family uh, to university in their family? Where did they grow up? You know, they give us the location data of the the place they went to school, for example, and you know, do they have a disability? Um, uh, and do did they have free school meals, for example? So that's all self-declaring information. But we we encourage candidates to do it so that we can, um, I guess, highlight um, and give them a boost uh, if it's appropriate. And what our system does is it gives somebody a match score, and if they if if all of those criteria are met, then they can get an extra kind of uplift on the match score of around, I think, up to 8% on our system. So it's a combination of all of those things that we're looking for, but specifically, it's the data that the individual voluntarily provides around their, you know, I guess, their social status growing up. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, so when I was... Uh when we did the pre-call, you had talked about having, you'd raised money and then you'd grown and then you had to scale your team back to kind of get the business back on track and pivot. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience? Mm. Yeah, it's quite dramatic. <laughs> um, I mean, I've been working for a long time, so I've worked through various recessions, of course. And um, I'd say the thing about a recession um, is that you can kind of see it coming. And so there's there's some element of, a market softening, um, some discussion, you know, on a wider basis that, you know, things may or may not get, um, tough. And of course, you can see it normally in your, you know, your sort of trading forecasts. So you, you, I guess you have a sense that, 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 that's coming. So I've worked through that before and I've also troubleshoot, uh, um, businesses. I've done that in the past. And again, when you're going in to try and understand what's going wrong with the business, there's normally, you know, some expectation or some experience for a period that things haven't been going so well. Whereas this particular situation was, you know, was very different. You know, we'd, we'd spent almost a year raising the money, um, that we did, substantial amount of money, $4.2 million in 2019. Um, it took us quite a long time to do it because we brought the money in from China, which is another story, but it, it just elongated the process of closing the round. Um, which we did uh, finally at the end of 2019. So we kind of came into, we'd started hiring because we got some of the money in. So we'd started bringing in people in sort of the last quarter of 2019 and obviously stepped our foot on the gas in Q1 2020 to bring in, you know, more people. And we went from something like nine people pre, pre-closed round to 23 people in March of 2020 
um, when we were just cooking on gas, I'd say. So, you know, to all intents and purposes, you know, the, the existing team, we were just, you know, really pumped because we'd raised the money and we were growing. We brought new talent in. It's just what we wanted. We wanted to, you know, the stage for growth. And of course, we got a load of new folks who joined really excited about the journey we were going on. And they joined because they bought into the intent. And then literally in, you know, a matter of a fortnight, things really turned dramatically. And, uh, yeah, I've got to say it was, it was probably the most, one of the, one of the toughest experiences of my life, really. Um, it just from all angles in terms of trying to rationalize what to do. Um, because, you know, prior two weeks, I'd been thinking, I'd talked to our investors, talked to bankers, saw, saw what was going on globally. And the general consensus was it's fine. Six to 12 months, you know, runway will be good enough. Um, and it'll blow over. And then literally two weeks later, it's kind of looking like it's going to be a lot longer than that. So facing into that prospect of having to do a complete about turn and whilst doing that, have to let go people we literally just hired was pretty traumatic. Right. Right. What kind of about face was this? How did how did you respond? Well, I, I think the first thing, the first thing that I think of having sat on it for a couple of weeks you know, after that first sort of discussion and conversations with the investors, I just did several days of, you know, financial forecasting and planning just to imagine the worst case scenarios. I had to plan for it to last a year or more, um, even though I wasn't sure that it actually would. I kind of had to plan for the worst case scenario to, I guess, to protect the business. Mm -hmm. So it was a case of just running through and trying to work out, you know, what does that look like from a from a, a scope of a business, and a, a lot different to the forecast and planning we'd done before. Obviously, in terms of scaling up and investing in marketing and growing the business, so it was very much um, considering what do we need to do over the next uh, year and what sort of shape do we want to be in. And to be honest, you know, the on the back of those initial conversations after lockdown was announced and we were going into it literally the tap turned off so and, and again in talking to other founders and other businesses it that I think there was a strong sense and we were getting it we, we'd scaled up sales when actually we were annoying customers by knocking on their door trying to get them to buy they just wasn't they didn't want to buy it's just that they got other things to deal with all of mm -hmm. a sudden so really it was about yeah. shaping the business to be successful and to double down on product um, which is what we did. So we built a new product team um, as a result of the hiring and shaped that uh, as to how I wanted it. So we kind of more or less kept that in shape and we just shaved back um, on growth and demand gen and some of the other areas that we'd we'd added resource. Um, but it meant obviously having conversations with uh, individuals that literally had only been in the business three or four weeks. And having to let them go, um, which, you know, was really difficult um, for everybody. But, you know, we're a transparent business and I've always run it in a transparent way. So, um, you know, I didn't want to hide behind anything. I just made sure I had I was really, really clear about what we had to do and then took it to the team. Yeah. How how, how was that for you letting people go that that, that had just come on? What was the what was the hardest part of that for you? I think my background's in HR going back a long time. 
that's how I started my career, although I obviously I left that function. And so, you know, and over the I'm not averse to uh, and I have plenty of experience of letting people go, you know, in certain circumstances. But in most cases, um, whilst the odd individual, it might be a shock, most people can see, you know, see these things coming or there's some sort of warning. And um, so, you know, in a circumstance where somebody isn't, doesn't anticipate it, it's difficult. In a circumstance where somebody's literally just joined and they've, you know, they've walked away from an, an, a job beforehand, you know, a, a career or, you know, a, a, a successful role before to come and join us, to be able to say to them, you're now unemployed potentially, was just really difficult. And I felt personally responsible for that. And, you know, you've got to, you've got to pick yourself up and you've got to move on. But having the conversations in particular with the people who'd, you know, literally just made their decision to join the company, um, and to be all in with Head Start was, yeah, was pretty, pretty gutting. Um, had to be done, but just one of those things where I particularly felt for those people who'd literally just been on board three or four weeks, um, because that throws their life into complete turmoil, as you can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine. So, so after this occurred, you, you restructured your business to kind of get the best from your team in product, uh, developing product the way you wanted it so that when the economy reopened and clients were receptive to, uh, to your biz dev, then you could kind of move back into that direction and move back into growth. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that restructuring and how it actually worked out for you now that we're about a year in a little over a year into this yeah so i think the focus so the what i wanted to do was um you know even restructuring it um we were able to retain a team of 16 so we had more resource than we had before so that was that was a good thing and we also had um you know enough resource in the product team to have a proper product team whereas before before we made that raise, you know, our product team was literally a senior engineers and two other engineers. Uh, we hadn't even had a product manager in place. I was kind of performing that role, which is obviously not sufficient. But we we had this newly structured uh, product team, which I thought was important to have, um, and because we were going to double down on product, and we had overall, you know. 16 heads as opposed to nine which we'd been before the raise so i think the first thing was to just you know be open with everybody i did a uh, i did an open session with everyone um i did a an employee survey with everybody including those that were leaving um and an nps internal nps employee i guess net promoter score um uh, survey because i wanted to make sure i understood fully what everybody was thinking about uh, the whole situation. But the important thing was, and, and that was, you know, I think very well received. Um, that you know, I believe, I'm, I'm a big believer in running an adult business um, and employing adults and, you know, letting them, you know, deliver for you as opposed to a command and control uh, kind of environment. And that, I think that openness and transparency got us through that first quarter or that second quarter, you know, um, mm. April, May, June period, which was very tough, but we kind of got through it. But in doing so, it allowed me to put together a 
what I call an operating system for our business, which is effectively just a, a structure on which we can, we can build the business. It's very simple, um, six phase, uh, structure, but it, what it does is it's a, it encourages multidisciplinary team approach to delivering product effectively from discovery research about what we're going to build through to design development and then on through marketing and delivery. And so that, that was the important thing, I think, is having, albeit only 16 people, we were able to um, deliver against that structure. So that was the most important thing, really, making sure we'd allowed people to, the time to sort of grieve a little bit, um, move the people to move on, which they had done by sort of May, um, mid-May, end of May, and then um, just regroup. And so it was quite a difficult quarter for us but we rallied and um you know doubled down on product like i said which was you know is now kind of paying dividends for us in terms of our ability to mm. respond to the market and understand actually what the clients want and then um once we got into that q3 we were it was transformative really you know we all understood what needed to be done those that were still here was just the tight team that we'd got and um, morale just, you know, kind of went through the roof um, in terms of, you know, we felt we'd got this. But again, that's that's really about our culture more than uh, the way we kind of create the adult culture we've got more than anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've, you've said this a couple of times, this like hiring adults and having an adult culture. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I've worked for quite a long time now 30 odd years and so I I kind of I've grown up in a working environment that certainly in the in the first you know decade or two was very structured you know very hierarchical um uh you know built around a structured day um you know in an office environment all of those things and coming from you know my background coming from HR I'd, I always felt that jarred with me personally um, and I was always on a bit of a journey to understand, you know, why when we say people are our most important asset, that never seemed to ring true in the business. Uh, that never, you know, that mm. the company seemed to pay lip service to that. And in fact, it's why I left the profession because I felt right. that a bit disillusioned. They can only be as good an asset as you let them be. Absolutely, absolutely right. And um, I felt that there was a lot of talk about it and then we weren't letting them be a good asset. And, in, and treating them like assets instead of human beings, you know, um, and I think that was the thing that got me. And, and I, I'd, I'd spent, I decided to go into more commercial roles and figuring that, you know, I, maybe I'm, I'm missing something from the world of work and, and that I will soon understand as to why it's like that. Or maybe I'll uncover that it's not and it's just a bit of a journey that companies need to go on. And, you know, 32 years in, I'm still a firm believer that, we do need, and in fact, we have in a way, m need to move to a much more, you know, flexible, informal uh, environment, but that's, that's focused on outcomes and is, you know, if we're going to invest and hire and develop great people, then the last thing we should be doing is then putting a whole bunch of constraints around them when they join the business. Um, so mm -hmm. for me, it's really important to... Um, create the right environment. Um, so a couple of years ago, a year before COVID, we became a distributed 
company. And we got, we, you know, dispatched with our offices and went remote. Um, and then, um, we just, you know, embarked on a journey of building that adult culture where we just focused on outcomes and where, you know, as a, as a CEO of a business, I, you know, wanted my leaders and the employees to, you know, step up and make decisions and take decisions. Um, and grow the business and they, you know, people respond, they do, you know, um, and it creates a much yeah. more committed team. It makes, creates a much more, um, engaged environment. Um, and it makes the business a whole lot more effective and productive. Absolutely. That resonates a lot with how we operate at Clearview, especially once you, once you've gone distributed, the same structures don't exist and don't work. Yeah. Uh, people will be working at, different hours of the day and it's going to be fit into the rest of their day and their habits and their family mm. in ways that aren't structured by an office. And so they're going to need different structures than the, you know, their other employees or what they used to have in an office. Yeah. So the, like the same level of structure simply doesn't work. And I mean, that's, that's what we've discovered. And I'm, I'm curious uh, in Head Start, what in lieu of those traditional structures, what principles or policies do you have in place that focus on the the outcome and really treat treat your employees like humans and still have them feel connected when they're remote? Sure. So we we kind of have um, we have four pillars in the business, which are um, I wouldn't say unusual, but at all in that we you know one is to be the best place to work or be a best place to work. Um, and that's the first one I always talk about because I believe it's important. Um, the other one is to be everywhere, which is, you know, effectively our brand and, and the company being you know, top of mind. Um, the third one is to be um, operationally awesome. So, you know, we operate well and efficiently and effectively. And, and the fourth one, not necessarily in that order, but to, the fourth one to be a product and a company that people love. Um, and I mean a company as well. So that, again, talks to us being a culture that, you know, clients, employees, and anyone who engages with us, you know, enjoys our company and understands us and sees us as a human business. So those are our four overriding goals, I suppose. But the key, mm. the key pillar that connects the human side is that for me, my mantra in the business is that I want anyone who works in our business to, to be the best you. That is their priority. So, um, and what I want to do and what we want to do as a company is to create an environment that allows that to happen. So I want people to be mentally and physically their best selves. I'm, I have no interest in how they do that. So I'm not prescribing that they do certain exercises or something. I don't want them to report what they're doing to, to do that to me or to the business. But I, that for me is the absolute priority. So basically as an individual find a working pattern that suits you find a working location that suits you find a way of working basically and living that allows you to be your best self and then you will bring that best self to your team and that team of best selves will bring the best team experience and the best deliverable to the company and it's in that order you, the team, the company. Mm -hmm. um, whereas for most of my life, I worked in organizations where the company came first, then the team, and then you didn't really get a look in as an individual. You know, you just got to keep up. And um, 
that is something that we just live and breathe. So consequently, when we went distributed, it wasn't just, hey, we're going to go remote. It's, look, we want to create an environment which is um, completely distributed, but it's effectively fully flexible. So we don't care where you work. I don't particularly care when you work at all either, um, uh, as long as you achieve the outcomes, you know, you, you produce your you know, you, that you, you look after yourself and you're the best person, but you produce the outcomes for you and your team, your teammates. Um, other than that, that's the, you know, that's the only requirement. So that people have full freedom to deliver um, within that fairly loose structure. As a remote business, we mm-hmm. do have a, a co-working space in London that we can drop in and out of. And prior to COVID, we would still meet up. So to support that distributed nature, it's completely up to anybody in the business if they want to meet face to face or not. So outside of that, we, we have every, we had a cadence of we would meet every four to six weeks for breakfast, um, get the team together, uh, in London. And if necessary, I'd fly people in. We got people in Italy and Poland and Bulgaria would fly those guys in and we'd just sit for a morning, um, get together for the morning and, you know, break bread just talk, maybe do a little update, but really just, you know, make sure that we're talking and we, we get, you know, people who've never actually physically met get to meet. We would also meet for a couple of days every quarter. So we'd have an overnight, go to dinner, but those two days were, were more work focused. We'd talk about planning. What are we doing? How is everyone feeling? What's the plan for the next quarter? What are you focusing on? And then we were planning to come together for about a week once a year. But we had to shelve that because of COVID. Yeah, in the normal circumstances, we would be meeting. We'd have these sort of, you know, four weekly, quarterly and annual meetings. And then everybody's free to to come together as they wish. So if, if you know, the guy in Italy feels that they want to spend a couple of weeks with our customer success folks in London, they're free to book a flight, come over, spend the time and go back. I have no interest in trying to control that. Um, or manage it um, effectively. People can make that choice. They're adults, you know. They make these choices every day in their personal lives. Um, they manage personal budgets themselves. Um, they are able to make decisions around work as to you know what's the best for them. So, outside of COVID, we are a business that is distributed, but we would meet you know when necessary. We have the choice. Everybody's got the choice how they want to do it, how they want to work and when they meet people. And I think that choice mm-hmm. is important. On, on a daily basis, tell me a, a little bit about how an average employee at Head Start, what their day might look like with regards to st- any structures and accountability. Do you do daily stand-ups uh, or do they just check in You know, over the course of a sprint with whoever they're collaborating with? Mm-hmm. How, does, how does that actually look? So we... Um, there's a couple of things, I suppose. We've, 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 in the last two years since we've been distributed, we've doubled down on trying to create focused work time. So we've eliminated a lot of meetings that weren't unnecessary. Um, and, um, we've moved to an asynchronous comms model. So we don't have Slack or uh, any sort of chat apps, um, you know, by our voluntary choice. We use a product called Twist which is, you know, effectively it's a thread-based comms tool. And on that, we use, that's our main point of, 
connection and communicating. And the understanding is that, you know, if I've got something to say or share, or I've got a question to ask, put it on twist, but I don't expect immediate answer. Um, if I put a question up there and, you know, I, some I, people aren't expected to read something the moment it goes up there. But that's our internal system that manages the comms that we talk about our clients, we talk about ourselves, we talk about process, product, and so on, in terms of all the conversation and updates and so on. And inside that, we have a bunch of other channels. We have check-in, which is, you know, everybody on a daily basis, just, you know, when they get up or when they start, they'll go in there and check in. Again, it's not mandatory. I don't care if people check in or not. It's just meant to create a little bit of human connection in the business as we're remote. But everybody does, you know, at various different times. And they come in and they go, I'm, I'm popping out to get some lunch or I'm, you know, I'm off to surf for a couple of hours because the weather's good or, you know, whatever. We have a music channel and so on. But that is our main comms um, that supports all of the interactivity. And then within the structure of deliverables, we we have this sort of cross-functional approach. So um, the product team are the, probably the ones that work together in that way the closest. Um, so we have you know, fortnightly sprints. Um, they have uh, stand-ups within that process and retrospectives and so on on the product side, um, which they share and they note and they manage all of that within our product management system called ClickUp. Um, and everybody has access to that. So everybody can see, you know, what's coming and, uh, how things are progressing, how the sprints have been going and so on, and what the performance criteria is like. But other than that, it's, you know, other than the people involved in those particular pieces, everybody can decide to be as involved and, you know, and inquire as much or as little as they want. I have a, the way I run the business is on a rag system, red, amber, green. And that's kind of a language we use inside the company. So every fortnight I have a, you know, effectively a stand up with my sort of functional leads. And, um, it's simply a, as a functional lead, they just say my, my area is red, amber or green. And they give two, three tops bullet points as to why it's red, amber or green. Um, and then do they, are they on, are they on top of it? And do they need help? So, yeah, it takes them about two minutes each. Um, and even if it's red, you know, nobody loses their shirt. If it's red, it's, if it's red, but I'm in control of it, then it's fine. Just keep us posted. If it's red and they're not in control of it and they want some help, that's fine. We'll all dive in. And as a leader, you know, if it's, if I'm hearing it's green, but elsewhere I'm hearing that I might not be the case, then I'll start to scratch below the surface. But that very, very rarely happens. I've got, you know, I trust my team. We're very, very open. So if, if, if there are challenges, we're very open about those. And then once a month, we have an all hands, um, where we bring the team together. And previously that used to be me doing a slide deck, an update slide deck, and maybe a couple of others and boring each other with slides. And we just stopped doing that. I just canned it. And, uh, mm. you know, we all do now a base camp style heartbeat. So yeah, I, you know, at, three, four, two weekly regular, whenever people want to do one, they do a heartbeat about their particular area. It might be customer success, it might be product, it might be engineering uh, within product. Um, and they post that uh, on Twist. And so the all hands still happens, but it's an hour and a half of Q&A. So there's no boring slides. You, you know, we expect people to come to the all hands having looked at the updates 
And if they haven't, and they ask a question about it, then they'll get told to go and read the update um, before they come to the meetings. But it, it means that we have a productive hour and a half of people just asking great questions as opposed to sitting there listening. Yeah, you get a much higher signal to noise that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so we, we again, we've, we're trying to not over-rotate on process and policy and structure and trying to, you know, be agile in the, in the, on the basis that, you know, people are, people have their responsibility and they can make a call. Um, they can stop the bus if they want to. Anybody can put their hand up and say, guys, uh, you know, I think there's a problem here. Um, and anybody can put their hand up and, uh, and push back uh, on me even, you know, I, 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 I welcome it. I would hope, I would like to think that people would say to you, if you ask my team that, you know, they, nobody has a problem pinging me or emailing me or calling me and saying, gee, you, you need to get back in your box or you're wrong. Um, because it's that kind of transparent environment that we've got. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what do you see upcoming for you this year, having gone through all of, through this pivot and this restructuring last year with COVID and having hit your stride and hitting morale and finding, finding these procedures and policies that are working really well. Hmm. Uh, what do you see coming up for the rest of 2021? Um, fundraising, <laughs> that old chestnut, um, the never ending round of fundraising because obviously we extended our runway, but that's, um, we've got to, you know, go back out and, uh, for another round of, of, of money. Um, get, you know, the clients, um, the client opportunities and the, the demand generation really picked up this year. Um, it's slow because it's COVID has gone on longer than we've ever thought. And the UK market is, is thawing slowly so for us the priority is mm. close those opportunities that have now starting to come through and feed the feed the engine of the business basically um with new client wins and um on the back of that go out and raise uh, another round i mean our plans have completely changed because at, at the time when we raised the money in 2019 we figured we'd be going for a you know a much larger round this year um, and of course we haven't been able to do that. We haven't met the metrics. So we're, we'll be going for a smaller round, but that's possibly not a bad thing. Um, one thing I've learned, I think is, you know, it kind of, it's an old bit of an old cliche, isn't it? But although the process of pairing back the business was very painful, we've, we've become a SWAT team of 16 and a better SWAT team of 16 than we probably would have been as a team of 23, 25. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, and, it's common. Yeah. And, and I think we benefited from that in hindsight. Um, so even when we raise this year, we won't be in a rush to grow. We'll hire when it hurts, as the base camp boys say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Gareth. This has been a really fascinating conversation. Oh, you're welcome. It's good. To- oh. Thanks for all the insight into, into how you guys are doing doing the distributed path yeah well i think uh interesting isn't it that covid has short-circuited the world of work by 20 years um and yep. thrust us into this and, and i think that's a good thing i think the challenge is that um it would have happened in it would have taken 20 years 
because that's just the natural osmosis of how we change the operating structures in companies. And yeah. in that 20 years, we would have seen a new batch of leaders emerge. You know, some old ones retire, new ones emerge who would have embraced that new way of working. And actually what we've got is this new way of working, but we've still got the old, the old leadership. And I think they're struggling with it. So it'll be really interesting to see how some of the established global organizations cope with, you know, life after COVID when people are, are used to being, having a little bit more choice and flexibility. So it'd be interesting times ahead. Yeah, it's an interesting forcing function for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Gareth. Hey, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.